Hey, I am not Kevin, by the way. Um, Kevin and their family is on vacation. I'm Shane. I'm usually um, back with the, with the kids, and they've let me out. And you, guys, you guys get windows and everything. It's wonderful out here. No, it's, it's really good. I, I am excited to be able to be out here. I know when, when Kevin asked me the other, a while back to preach this Sunday, and he gave me the section to speak on, and it was Jeremiah 8 through 12, and I started looking at it, and I started right from chapter 8, and I started reading, and I thought, oh, wow, this will be fun. Um, the first thing was um, talking about leaders, the priests of the people, and how their bones are going to be dug up, removed from their graves, laid on the ground like dung. And I thought, wow, this is going to be one of those really chipper messages. I can just tell already that we are going to be going down a good path. It does get better than that, I promise. Um, we're not going to dwell too much on dungy bones. Um, so in reality, as I was, I just started reading chapters 8 through 12 over and over again over the last number of weeks, or the last couple here, and you start to see the situation where the people of God, Judah's all that's left, the rest of the people have left. God had planted his people in, this Canaan, in the Canaanite area, and instead of being the light to the people that God had called them to be, they had absorbed what was around them. Instead of impacting the nations, they were themselves impacted. And they started picking up just the junk that was all around them. And they didn't totally leave God, but they just added all of this to it alongside. And Jeremiah comes into the midst of this, and he starts calling them out. And, you know, he wasn't particularly, um, he didn't mince words. He, he called them out with a certain authority and a certain, certain power. And they, and he called, was calling them back to God. And as I thought about it, really, he was calling them to, um, as Becky and I were, were chatting, joking about, forsake the fake. Now, this isn't fake news. Um, this, is, um, the, this is the original fake that they were called out of. And Jeremiah was calling them to leave all the fake, all the false, all the temporary, all the junk that didn't matter, and he was calling them back to a true and legitimate worship of the true creator God. Now, we don't like fake things, do we? Or things that we, I guess we expect one thing and we get something else. When I was about 12, I, I had a very traumatic experience. Maybe, no, probably about eight. I was at a pot like a church, and there were all these pies. I love lemon meringue pie. And I walked up and I got what I thought was going to be a piece of lemon meringue pie. It's hard to talk about. I'm, I'm, um, when I bit into this, it was banana cream pie. Now, at some point when I was a child, something happened, and I've never liked bananas since then. And I literally, like, like two months ago at work, there was some pies saying, I work at a, a food company. And I went, I picked up the pie and tried to smell it. I couldn't tell, and I love pie. I left it and walked away because I couldn't tell if it was worth Anything, a lemon meringue pie, which is awesome, or this horrible thing called a banana cream of um, monstrosity. We want 
the truth. We want, when we look at something, we want the legitimate. God is calling us to forsake all that that is fake in our lives, all that is fake around us, to come back to, to what he is calling us to. So we got five points. And is there a clock right up there? 1045? Okay. So we got five points. We're going to go fast. You're going to have to listen fast. I'm going to talk fast. And we're going to go through this. And I would ask, I'm going to pray here in a second, but I would ask that you would pray. We're going to take some, a little bit of time at the end to pray for God to speak to us. But God can speak to us right now while I'm talking. You, you can listen to, to God and me. Um, hopefully listen to him more than me. Um, and let's just pray and ask that God would work in our midst right now. Lord, we want you above all else. We want you to do your work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that your spirit would convict, bring verses to our mind, bring thoughts to our mind, bring um, callings to us. I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts right now. And at the end of it, you would be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're going to see if I can control this from up here. We'll start right off. Forsake the lie that your life is actually your own. So if you came in here thinking that you were in control of your life, that you had the right to decide what you do, what you don't do, what makes you happy, where you want to go, how you want to do these things, that's a lie. We'll just start right off there. It's, um, start off fairly quickly. The lie that your life is your own. In Jeremiah chapter 10, Lord, I know that the people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. And yet everybody around you will tell you when you're in school all the way through what will make you happy, what will make you fulfilled, what will bring you joy. Oh, pursue that. No. <laughs> that is an absolutely false question. If you pursue that, you won't find it. You will find sadness, disappointment, meaninglessness if you pursue your own happiness apart from God. If you pursue your ultimate joy in God, you will find it. But not apart from God. People's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. We think that we can make the choices we want, do what we want, and there are no eternal or divine consequences. And that is false. God has purposes for us. Jeremiah 8, 6, I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, what have I done? Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. You ever seen a horse charging into battle? I haven't. Well, I guess on TV. You ever see um, Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is up at the top of the hill and there's the evil hordes of icky things down at the bottom? And he comes up with his horse and his army behind him and he charges down the way? There is nothing stopping that horse, not even things with ugly teeth and armor and spears. It's going that way. That's what God looks at the Israelites and said, nothing's stopping them. They're doing whatever they want. I can't control them. They're stubborn. They're going their own way. That is not what we're called to. Um, another verse. Um, they have, talking about the hell, the Israelites did not follow God's law. 
But instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed Baals as their ancestors taught them. They, they took a little bit of Baal, added it to a little bit of God, and they thought, oh, I can kind of make my day to what I want it to be. I can make my life. Um, I'm kind of in control of my life. As I was um, praying about this and, and thinking through this, I was challenged that, it's like, I believe that. But how do I get that to be part of what I really live out more? And one of the things that came to my mind is that daily, I need to be declaring that to God, like, like offering it back up to God on a regular basis, saying, God, this day, today, these next 24 hours are really yours. They're really not mine. What's it going to look like for me today to live my life for you and not for myself? And then at the end of the day, hey, God, how did I do? Speak to me. Like, like engage with God. To what degree are we actually living out his purposes in our lives? Do you think he'll talk? <laughs> Man, I do. I believe he will. He he has got desires for us and purposes that will bring us great, that will be joyful for us, not so easy, but of eternal significance. Eternal significance. Hmm. Okay, let's, let's go on to the next one. Forsake fake, self-oriented spirituality. See, that's what Baal worship really was. There was false sensuality in it. There was this sense that they could control. You needed a little bit of better weather, well, you do this sacrifice. All these Canaanite religions, you were kind of in control. And you could do things to control what happened. And their worship was truly oriented about their self. And their spirituality was oriented about themselves which is where idol worship comes in, right? This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens. Though the the nations are terrified by them, for the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. And the implication is, and then you go worship this piece of wood that your buddy down the road cut out. So we're going to spend the next 35 minutes talking about Baal worship now. I'm, I'm teasing. Not, it's not that we are looking at grabbing a piece of wood and going home and asking that to do something spiritual for us. But in many ways, we're not that far off. Um, I, I, I love this one. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Isn't that, picture that. A big old scarecrow out in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they can't walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Every time you look at a cucumber this summer, think of false idol worship. And then enjoy that cucumber. Um, No, they can't do anything. They're empty. They're worthless. What's Jeremiah do? He goes right to the root of the matter. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. He takes them right to creation. Listen, God made the tree. You cut it down and make it chisel into a little idol. 
and then you pray to it, and you expect that to do something. Worship the real God who made the tree that that, that idol came from. How does that apply to us today? Do we make our own spirituality frequently? Ever? How many times have you heard in the last year? I've heard it a bunch. You know, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I, I'll take a little over here. I'll, I'll take a little Gandhi. I'll take a little Buddha, or big Buddha, whatever it, it is. Um, I'll take a little this. I'll take a little that. And I'll mix it up, and I'll feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside, and I'll feel good about myself, and I'll think peaceful thoughts, and I'll be spiritual. But there's no commitment, there's no accountability, there's no demands upon me. It's a religion of my own making because I just pick and choose because I'm really in control. And we make fun of the person who worships a piece of wood that they made. But we think, oh wow, look at that person who's so spiritual. They're able to assemble their own religion. And we don't it doesn't stand out to us. But, but their systematic theology books are Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, because they, they pull a little quote from here, a little bit from that, and they put it all together. Now, here's the good news. People are seeking God. How do we take that and say, hey, I saw your post yesterday about peace. That really made me think. And turn that conversation into how you can have peace with God. Are we using those conversations, those pieces? People are looking for for reality. They're looking for God, but they're trying to assemble their own. And, And God calls us to speak the truth in that. Forsake false priorities. This is number three. Forsake false priorities. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. In these I delight. What's wrong with wisdom, strength, riches? I guess inherently nothing, right? I mean, there's nothing like it's not sinful to be strong. It's just that it is incredibly temporary. I I can't lift what I once did in high school. Um, It's fading (laughs) quickly. (laughs) Um, I'm... Wisdom. You know what? You can pursue wisdom. And in eternity, when we know God as we're known, <laughs> not that we shouldn't pursue those. It's not, it's not bad. But it's not, not the, the ultimate. Instead, we're called to know God. Again, here in verse 24. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. Now, the, the word know there is yada, and it, um, 
it's a broad word. Can you, it's, it's an intimate knowledge. It was used of Adam and Eve as they knew one another and had kids. Um, it's, it's very broad. It's, a, it's an intimate knowledge that actually results in times of a change of behavior. So um, this, is in, this is down the road here in Jeremiah 22. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. And here's the, here it is. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? So he knew God. He picked up the attributes of God, started living like that, and that's what God says. Is, well, that's what it means to know me. It's when you know me to a degree that my character starts getting lifed out in you. And back in our, in our passage, it's kindness and justice and righteousness. These are the things that we're calling out, that we strive for. When you think of all the things in life that we can do that are not bad, but that are just temporary, that are just um, short-lived, God is calling us to actually refocus and focus on him in such a way that our behaviors are actually shifted that they're transformed into the character of his son. That's what it means to know God and to know him in, in, all, of, in all that he is. Let's go on to the next one. Forsake false promises of security. So, Jeremiah... Um, Actually, let me go back here a little bit. Yeah, let's look at Jeremiah 8. Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners from the least to the greatest. All are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike. All practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say. But there's no peace. So this... Jeremiah was writing and speaking in about 620 B.C. It was probably 10 to 15 years before Babylon would come with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were taken off. This is in that era. This is right at that time. And that was a violent time. And there was a lot of insecurity. And so the people were, were longing to say, I want something I can depend on. I want some safety. And their spiritual leaders would come along and say, oh, you're safe, peace, peace. And they lied. <laughs> because it wasn't based on anything. It was just empty words. It was um, what they wanted to hear. But it wasn't the truth that they needed to hear. There's a lot of false teaching or twisting that says basically, you know what, if, if you want financial security, 
just like with idol worship where if, if I sacrifice this pig, I could get this. Well, if I give this, I can, God's guaranteed he's going to do this or that for me. And it tries to put us in control of our security based on how we give or how we do things. And, and people are looking for security. It's not that God doesn't bless. He does. And we say, thank you, God, and we, and we seek him in that. But it doesn't do justice to the bigger picture of Scripture. I, I, I like this, this quote from, from John Piper. He said this, If God's love for his children is being measured by our health, wealth, and comfort in this life, then God hated the Apostle Paul. You know, at, we are called to live boldly, to live in a risky fashion, to, to lay it out there for, for God. Jesus said this in, in John chapter 15. He said, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, will they persecute you also? Do you think it's possible now, that when we go out and share our faith that people might, some people might not like that? It's possible. Somebody may reject us. It, it's really, it's actually kind of likely because our Savior said that they would if we're following him. Um, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute us. It's not about our psychological safety, our, our um, lack of risk and our protection. So in chapter 11 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the last half of chapter 11 and into 12, Jeremiah, and we're not going to take time to read it, but basically Jeremiah goes before God and says, well, God actually tells him, hey, there's a group of people that are going to try to kill you. And Jeremiah and God go back and forth on this, and there's this whole plot, and then Jeremiah turns in this whole thing, well, God, they're trying to kill me, and, and by the way, why is it that the wicked always prosper? They seem to be doing well, and I've got this whole group of people trying to kill me. Now, that's, that's a certain amount of severity in that, right? Um, that's, that's frankly more than I've ever had to endure, um, thankfully. Now, God, in his comfort, he, he comes to Jeremiah. And let me, let me just paraphrase for us here. Um, it is in the beginning of chapter 12, verse 5. Let me see if I've got it here. Nope. Yeah, I didn't put it in here. Wonderful. Okay, I'll just read it for you. Um, 12, 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in a safe country, how will you manage the thickets by the Jordan? What's God saying there? He's saying, listen, Jeremiah, yeah, I know they're trying to kill you, but if you can't handle it when you're really actually safe, how are you going to handle when you get in the deep end, when it gets really bad? I mean, so it's like, kind of like underlying the Hebrew there. It's kind of like a buck up buttercup. You know, it's... Um, really um it's a you know 
Jeremiah, yeah, they're trying to kill you. It's going to get worse. It's okay. Carry on, son. Um, does that resonate with us? Or does that, is that like, I'm not sure I like that. Um, and yet, God is t- telling Jeremiah, listen, I'm worth it. You follow me, and it's okay. Even if it, and the thing is here, it's his family. It's his kinspeople. It's his kinfolk who are actually trying to kill him because they don't like his message. Are we prepared to go through times of difficulty to be bold for Christ? Um, a while back, I read a book um, called The Insanity of God. I, I honestly, I don't remember if I've shared this here before. I don't think so. Um, in the guy that wrote the book went around and was asking all these people about their faith and how God had worked in their lives. And he was going through China and through Russia and the Ukraine and all these difficult places. And he was documenting what it was like to really live for God. And these kinds of things are really important because it puts life in perspective in ways that what in, in our very safe place, I'm not really sure that we see what it's really like to follow God in, in a risky way. Um, he, he asked this guy what it was to kind of tell his story. And he shared this. He said, I remember the day like it was yesterday, Nick. My father put his arms around me, and my sister and my brother and guided us into the kitchen to sit around the table where he could talk with us. My, mom, my mama was crying, so I knew that something was wrong. Papa didn't look at, that, look at her because he was talking directly to us. He said, children, you know that I'm the pastor of our church. That's what God has called me to do, to tell others about him. I have learned that the communist authorities will come tomorrow to arrest me. They'll put me in prison because they want me to stop preaching about Jesus. But I cannot stop doing that. Because I must obey God. I will miss you very much. But I will trust God to watch over you while I'm gone. And even just stopping there, you're like, wow, that's... When we think of how challenging it is for us to share the gospel. <laughs> but then he continues. He says, and he hugged each one of us. And he said, all around this part of the country, the authorities are rounding up followers of Jesus and demanding that they deny their faith. Sometimes when they refuse, the authorities will line up whole families and hang them by the neck until they are dead. I don't want that to happen to our family. So I'm praying that once they put me in prison, they will leave you and your mother alone. However, and here he paused and made eye contact with each one of us. If I'm in prison and I hear that my wife and my children have been hung to death rather than deny Jesus, I will be the most proud man in prison. Can you imagine? Like, I can't imagine pulling Mason Harrison Ainsley aside and saying, if I'm put in prison, and I hear that you're hung, but you maintain your faith for Christ, I'll be the most proud dad in prison. Can you imagine this, what that would do to one's faith? Like, awesome! You stood firm. That is so different world from where I live. Such a different world. 
But when I read something like that, and then I read like Philippians 3.8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Jeremiah's message, God's message to Jeremiah, Paul's message in Philippians, it's not that different from the, from the Ukrainian pastor. But it feels very different for me. I believe with all of my heart that God is calling us to reach out to our community. Way, way, way more than we have, than we are. I, I would really ask us to, to look within and, and say, am I, am I just timid? Am I just scared? Am I... Do I really um, lack the belief that God is worth it all? <laughs> to go, to speak, to share, to love. I don't think any of us are at risk of being taken to prison and being hung. That's the really, really good news, okay? That's the really good news. And yet, if we, if we have the small view that this really isn't about life and death, like eternal life and death, we have totally missed it. God's judging people in Jeremiah and killing people because of their lack of faith. He's calling Jeremiah to lay his life on the line. He's calling pastors a few years ago in Ukraine to lay their lives on the line. This is about, you can't get more urgent, more important things than eternal life and death, separation from God, life with God. This is at the very core. There's nothing more important. It puts things in perspective. Can you imagine that father, you know, getting done talking with his kids? And saying, okay, guys, we got, we got to hurry up. It's almost 8 o'clock. The um, next show of um, American Idol is coming on. And we got to see who Simon's going to chew out tonight. You're like, oh, wait, you're talking about getting hung. This doesn't make sense in light of what's really going on. And I guess I just ask us to really pray. Put our lives in clear view from an eternal perspective. Do you think that the most affluent, comfortable church ever should not be the most bold church ever? As the church in America, we have so much. We have, we're so comfortable. We have awesome teaching, awesome books. Should we not 
be the ones that are the boldest. And yet, I fear that we're the most comfortable. All right, last one. Forsake fake repentance. Oh, this is a good one. Forsake fake repentance. Here, let's read this one. Jeremiah 8.12. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fall and they will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. Over and over again, God's calling, through Jeremiah, he's calling people, repent, come back to God. And he says, this is normal to come back to God. They, they don't. They just stay right where they're at. They're comfortable. They don't change. What, what is repentance? It's, it's turning from our sin. It's, it's saying, yes, that's wrong. That's, that's wrong. Let, let, me, let me tell you, give you a, a, an illustration. So I have wonderful children. Um, sometimes they do things that aren't wonderful, but they are wonderful children. And this just goes back a couple of weeks. So we were over at um, Elisa's open house. And there was cookies, really yummy cookies. They were with chocolate um, Hershey's Kisses on top of these, of these wonderful cookies. I won't tell you who, but one of my children took a couple of those cookies. And on the way home, we stopped, and the, this wonderful child of mine had no place to put the cookies. So they put the cookie inside of the armor. It's like, you know when you shut the door, or you put your hand down inside, you shut there? Well, they put the cookies down in there. Now, you would think that when they came back out of the store that they would get said cookies. They did not. And so the next day, I'm driving home after the car had been out in the heat all day. I'm like, hmm, I smell cookies. <laughs> this is a good smell. I like cookies. But I had the foresight to think, this is probably not going to last that long. The, the, the smell may go south after a few days here. And so I started looking for the smell of the cookies. And I found melted chocolate um, cookie crumbs all gummed up in the back of my Prius door handle. Now, that created warm feelings within me. And, and I went to my wonderful children, and I said, who, who left the cookies in the back of the door handle? And the child who did it, it, it was, we went back and forth on what, is, what their <clears throat> exact response was, but it was something along the lines of, okay, Dad, sorry, or maybe it was, oh, sorry. And then it was on to do something else. Now, as a father whose Prius has been violated with cookies in the back door handle, I did not feel like that was an appropriate repentance. I wanted groveling, shack, sackcloth ashes thrown up in the air would have made me feel good. Yeah, yeah, sorry, Dad, bye. That didn't feel sincere, nearly as sincere as I wanted them to feel about it. I, I, it's still there, by the way, if anybody is curious. How many weeks is this couple now? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this afternoon, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic that there, there may be some actual change. Because, see, that's one of the things that, that comes along with repentance. This is actually a, a change. <laughs> it, it, it's cleaned up. <laughs> Um, not just an I'm sorry and, and going on. 
repentance for us is not us trying to convince God we're, we're serious. It, it's God working in our hearts to help us understand the seriousness of our sin and to help us turn from it. Do you ever see value in, I, I do, by the way, um, so this is a somewhat rhetorical question, but reading people from earlier generations, I'm not even saying like way back, sometimes things that we don't talk about very much they're much more willing to. So, for example, this is, this is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's not, this is not like centuries ago. This is just a, a while back. He said this, Repentance means that you realize that you're guilty, a vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you're hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, and you long to get rid of it, and you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost. The world is in its mind and outlook as well as its practice. And you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. And I think if Jeremiah was here, the call to repent and turn from our sins, that's, that's not something that was just for Israel. It's something we all enter into on a regular basis as God is changing us and transforming us into the image of his Son. Now, part of this that I think that I didn't put verses in, that I will just read. <clears throat> so, let's go to Jeremiah. Let me look at Jeremiah 9, chapter 1. You've heard Jeremiah referred to as the weeping prophet. Probably. This is the passage that it comes from. It's in, in our section that we're looking at today. And Jeremiah says this, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Now catch this. In verse 10, if you can enter in verse 10, Matt, that, this would be great. This is, this is worth us seeing of chapter 9. It says, I will weep and wail for the mountains and take up a lament concerning the wilderness grasslands. That's God talking. Now, he's not literally weeping about the grasslands. He's weeping that there's no one there. He's weeping that his people have had to be judged and taken out. We're kind of used to thinking of God. His, we're used to talking about his love and his justice and his wrath at times. Do you ever envision God, the creator of the universe, weeping over sinful behavior? Like, um, one, one guy, he put it this way, um, it's, it's like a parent weeping over a child who's going down the wrong path. It's that, it's that sorrow, that look at what's happening, and, and, and he sees it. And I believe that God is sharing his heart with us so that it actually communicates to us the significance of it. It is so easy in this day and age to just dismiss and walk past 
our behaviors. And, not, and I guess what I'm saying is, when we repent, pray and ask God to help you see it from his standpoint. To help you to see it as he sees it. Help him, help you to understand his heart for you in this. That it, it may deserve tears. Um, in, in Ezekiel 6.9, it talks about, God talks about how I've been grieved by their adulterous, adulterous hearts. If you ever want to, to go down, we're not going to do it today, and you can be, be happy here. Um, if you ever want to go on kind of a, a ride down into the weeds of systematic theology, check out, um, do some Google searching on the impassibility of God. You ever, when you ever in school and you were taking a course and you're, you're like, teacher, where in the world is this going to be relevant to me ever? Well, the impassibility of God was one of those things that I remember seeing in class and thinking, where does this matter at all? Well, it's the whole idea that in the Westminster Second Catechism, they were talking about how God isn't moved by passions and doesn't feel things. And there's some, and they'll talk back and forth about how God feels emotions. And at the end of the day, I think it's important for us to say, well, let me, let me just read this. I think this is helpful. Um, Wayne Grudem says it this way. He says, I have not affirmed God's impassibility. Instead, quite the opposite is true. For God, who is the origin of our emotions, who created our emotions, certainly does feel emotions. God rejoices in Isaiah 62.5. He's grieved in Psalm 78.40. His wrath burns hot against his enemies. He pities his children. He loves with an everlasting love. He is a God whose passions we are to imitate for all eternity as we, like our Creator, hate sin and delight in righteousness. Jeremiah is calling the people to reject a false repentance. Seek to know God in his heart, in his weeping over our sin, but also in his love for us. I can hold one emotion at a time, if I'm lucky. And I don't even do that well, usually. Catch this. God can look at me and weep over my sin and love me and see me through Christ and feel joy in me and yet call me to repentance. And the crazy thing is, while he's looking at me that way, he's looking at you and you and you, and he's feeling all these emotions. I don't get it. But God is relating to each one of us in all of these ways, all the time, perfectly. His sorrow over our sin and his love for us and his hatred of sin and his justice and his, his um, caring, compassionate, and all of those things fit together perfectly in God. And we can rest in his goodness. And we can trust him. Jeremiah was calling the people of Israel to come back to God. To reject false views that they were their masters of their own destiny. 
to reject false spirituality that said that they were in control. He called them back to himself. Now, the people of Israel, they were in a covenant relationship with God. They were his people. And in many ways, that's where, where we're at. If we're followers of Jesus, we're in a relationship with God. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the relationship we have with God. But there are many who are not in a relationship with God. They may be seeking. They may be curious. But they've not entered into that relationship with God. How does that happen? How do we, as, the, as creation, as people, enter into a relationship with a holy God? You know, seriously, the first thing is that sin, it separates us from God. It, it is the barrier. It's what started back with Adam and Eve. We are separated from God. And the lousy thing is every one of us do it. Every one of us sin, and every one of us are separated from God. Here's the thing. I love Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still, while we were still sinners, he died for us. God, holy God, became man, died for us. And he did it to pay for the wages of sin, which is that separation from God. Listen, to enter into a relationship, it's amazing. God, who created everything, wants a relationship with us. And all we have to do is place our faith in Christ. You are Lord. Turn from our sin, place our faith in Christ, and say, God, I trust that what you did on the cross can cover my sins. Forgive me, and I'll follow you. It's not a... It's not a um, a secret set of words. It's not a repeat this right after me. It's our heart going to God and saying, you are the king. You are right. I have sinned. Forgive me. And I'll follow you in my life. And at that point, what Christ did on the cross for us is applied to us and we are brought into relationship with God and we're adopted as his children and we're loved by God. And we enter into this relationship where we can trust ourselves with him and we can follow him. We can risk everything and we can follow him. And we can achieve that meaning and purpose and joy in life that we were created for that we can't find apart from him. That's how we come into, into relationship with God. And that's how we continue on. That's how we continue in faith every day, going to God declaring, you are my Lord. <laughs> I'm going to keep on following you today. You are my God. Let's do this. We're going we're gonna to wrap up now. And what I would like to do is um, let's just have, have the band. Well, actually, let's do this. Let's pray for just a couple of minutes. And, and we're going to take some time at the end for ministry. But I want us to pray about what God may be speaking to us. Um, and just, just listen. And let's, let's pray, pray for a minute or so. 
And sometimes God gives us directions to what we should pray into or what God wants to do in her midst. And we, and we want to create um, an opportunity for that. So just take a minute and, and let's pray.